Good evening. We're very glad you're here. My name is Wesley Wilson. I'm chief of the Central Library. And it really is a pleasure for me this evening to introduce Gail Barrett, who is a romance writer currently living in Western Maryland. And it's really my first experience with romance writers in terms of reading. And um, I'm pretty wowed. Uh, you know, while Gail states she knew she'd be a writer, her life has taken many paths from travel, interpreting Spanish, raising a family, to becoming not only just a writer, but an award-winning romance writer whose first book, Where He Belongs, was an immediate success. Gail's books have won numerous awards, including the National Reader's Choice Award, the Book Buyer's Best Award, and the Romance Writers of America's prestigious Golden Heart. Gail is a member of the Romance Writers of America, and she is working on a trilogy, Buried Secrets, and Fatal Exposure is the first book in that series. And I'm just going to give a little teaser, um, because I couldn't resist. Um, Baltimore cold case detective Parker McCall who spent 15 years trying to solve his brother's murder. A chance photograph in the newspaper sets him hard on the woman's trail, a former teenaged runaway, reclusive, and award-winning photojournalist who chronicles the harsh reality of life on the streets until a photograph in the paper reveals her identity, exposing her past secrets. So why does sexy detective... Parker McCall tempt her to break her silence and resurrect ideals she'd lost long ago? And how does the Enoch Pratt Central Library play a role in this romance thriller as it unfolds? And now I'd like to introduce you to Gail. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Wesley Wilson um, the chief of the Central Library, um, Greg Sesek and Teresa Edmonds from the Programs Department, um, Michael J um, Johnson from the Special Collections, um, who showed us around today and let us see some of the treasures that the library has. Um, I appreciate being asked to speak so much. Um, it's really an honor to be here and um, to be with other readers, people who love stories as much as I do. Um, now, when I was invited to speak, I thought for a long time about what I should talk about. Um, and I decided that probably the people that might come to my talk were not necessarily romance readers. Um, and I'll go out on, in a, on a limb and assume that you are probably not big romance readers, um, which is great because you are the people that I wanted to talk to tonight. Um, what I thought I would do to make this a little bit more lighthearted would be to talk about seven beliefs or misconceptions about romance novels, um, what people generally think and whether they're true, that's true or not. And then also I want to work in how the Pratt Library come to, came to be in my, in my novel. Um, and I have to give you the bad news right up the front. There are no steamy scenes in the, in the, behind the stacks. <laughs> Maybe in real life there are. I don't know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> okay. Um, so belief number one 
um, when most people think about romance novels is that they think that they're all about sex. And that is false. Um, Romance novels are all about love. They're all about relationships. Um, According to Romance Writers of America, which is our national organization, um, in order for a book to qualify as a romance, it has to have two basic elements. Um, The plot, there must be a central love story. The plot has to center on two people falling in love um, and struggling to make the relationship work. Um, now, honest, obviously, sex is a part of relationships, um, but there is a wide variety in what is actually shown in books. There is everything from erotica, which is at the moment quite popular, um, which shows a lot, is very explicit, um, to Christian inspirationals, um, which have absolutely no sex on the page. So when you think about romance novels, you need to remember that there is a, a huge variety. Um, there's everything from what we call sweet romances, which um, don't have any kind of um, sex or swearing, to erotica and a lot in between. Um, the other idea or the other um, thing that a romance novel has to have is a happy ending. Um, readers like romances because they want to see the struggle between the people and they want that affirmation that there's hope, that relationships can work. It doesn't have to end in marriage, but it should end in the the feeling that this couple is going to be able to work through their problems and make it. So those are the two things. It has to be centered on a love story and it does have to have a very optimistic ending. Um, and that is, that's central to a romance. Okay, belief number two, romance novels earn a lot of money. Um, This is actually true. Uh, The market share last year in 2012 for classic literary fiction was $470 million in the United States. That's classic literary fiction. Science fiction and fantasy, $590 million that it earned. Religious or inspirational fiction, $718 million. Mysteries, $728 million. Romance, $1.438 billion in earnings. It is by far the largest share of the consumer book market. Um, now, most of these books were Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> which completely undermines what I just said about them not being about the sex. <laughs> but um, seriously, almost all of the top performing Uh, or romance was by far the top performing category on the New York Times bestseller list, USA, the Publishers Weekly, um, romance sells. Now, whether individual authors sell within that genre, of course, is variable. I mean, you have everything from the superstars um, like Nora Roberts to much lesser known writers, but definitely their romance novels sell. Okay, belief number three. The typical romance reader is a lonely, older, uneducated woman who spends all her time escaping reality by reading romance novels. Um, The female part is true. Uh, Definitely over 90% of romance readers are women. Um, But the lonely part is not true. More than half, um, I think the statistic is from about 2007, over half are married Um, Another 13% are widowed or divorced or separated. Um, 
the mean age for a print reader of romance novels is 49 years old. The mean age for an e-book reader is 42. The average income of a romance reader is between fifty dollars and $100,000 a year. Most, um, almost half, have at least a bachelor's degree or higher. Um, 15% have postgraduate degrees um, or doctorates. And writers as well. Romance writers are highly educated. We have many PhDs among our group, Jennifer Cruzy, Eloisa James, um, etc., um, and actually, Princeton had a symposium on the romance genre within the last few years, so it's finally getting a little bit of respect. Okay, number four, everyone loves the covers. <laughs> this is definitely not true, right? Um, a lot of emotion about the covers. Um, most of the romance writers really don't like the covers, um, but we have to trust that the marketing departments know what they're doing um, and that readers' expectations are being filled. Um, I have been writing up to this point for Harlequin, and the way Harlequin does it does it is they have an art fact sheet that you fill out, um, and you fill in, you describe your characters, you write a short synopsis, um, what the book's about, um, and describe some scenes, and then their art department uses that to create a cover. Um, I have had covers that I've absolutely loved, and I have covers that I have absolutely despised. So um, it's a mixed bag. Now, I know with a lot of the indie publishing and the self-publishing, people are now hiring their own cover artists and creating their own covers. So that has changed um, things a lot. But in the traditional publishing world, um, that's handled by art departments and marketing. Um, they do lots of research on covers, uh, focus groups, and then every couple of years they're always changing the covers to put out what they think the readers want. Um, number five, romance writers have to use a pen name. That's false. Um, in the old days, actually, I think that might have been true. Um, sometimes the publishers would try to get the rights to the name, um, which definitely, as an author, you don't want to happen. Um, there are a lot of writers, not just romance writers, but writers in, in general who do use pseudonyms, um, and there are really good reasons to do that. Um, sometimes if people become very famous and they don't want you know, stalkers or whatever, um, but usually it's a business decision because um, I always like to give the analogy, if you buy a can of Pepsi and you opened it up and it tasted like 7-Up inside, you would be really disappointed. Uh, and with writing, it's the same way. If you pick up a Stephen King novel or a John Grisham, you know what you're going to get. Um, and so a lot of times if writers are very prolific and they write in different genres um, or want to go into you know, a slightly different type of story, they'll change their name so that the reader doesn't feel um, ripped off when they get that. And I guess J.K. Rowling just did that, right, with um, Robert Galbraith, I guess, was the name she chose. All right, number six. Romance novels are easy to write and sell. We were just talking about that. All right, obviously they are easy to sell, right? There is a definitely a market for romance novels. However, the writing. <laughs> no book is easy to write. I mean, no matter how easy it is to read it and how quick of a read it is, um, that is the skill of the writer who makes you think that it was just easy to write, you know, that you went through it really quickly. Um, books in general are difficult to write. This particular trilogy that I wrote um, really stretched me as a writer. Um, 
I had the idea for it years ago. I tend to be kind of a slow thinker, um, and I got the kernel of an idea to write about three girls um, who ran away from home and met on the streets and witnessed something traumatic um, that they would keep a secret. And then years later, the secret would come back and haunt them. This was kind of the idea I had. And I thought about it for a long time, um, and I and I kept liking that idea. I kept wanting to write the story. It just, it just resonated with me as something that I wanted to do. Um, so I decided on three girls who all ran away for different reasons. The first heroine, um, the heroine of the first book, ran away because she was sexually abused by her stepfather. The second one ran away because she was pregnant and she came from a high society family who wanted her to have an abortion and she had an idealistic um, belief that she could raise the child, and so she ran away. The third heroine um, was Middle Eastern, and her family had arranged a marriage for her, and which she didn't want, so she ran away to escape that, um, and then they had set out to kill her in an honor killing. I decided on Baltimore for the setting because I figured, well, first of all, I live in Hagerstown, so I thought I could come here for research, and I thought it was a good location because there are a lot of other cities close by where runaways might move around and be able to blend in. Um, I decided that they witnessed a gang execution, um, and that put them then on the run again. Um, now, when I went to write the books now, it's 15 years later, so they're all adults, um, and the first heroine is a photographer who specializes, she's a photojournalist, and she specializes in street life. She takes photos of runaways, um, the second one is a social worker who runs a, sh a shelter for pregnant teens. And the third heroine is a plastic surgeon who does pro bono work on battered women. So they have all come to give back to the community, but they're all still on the run. They've all changed their names um, and have hidden their past. Um, so the story begins when the first person, the first heroine, um, there's a chance photograph of her in the newspaper and her identity is exposed. Um, and so there it goes. So I thought this was a great idea. I was very excited about it. Um, but I realized, okay, if I'm writing a trilogy, usually at the end of a story there's some sort of resolu resolution of the mystery, right? I mean, you, you but if I'm writing a trilogy, that killer that they witnessed 15 years ago has to continue in some way. So that took a lot of thought. In addition, in each story, each of the heroines has to come to grips with the original issue that made them run away from home. So they have the danger from the murder that they witnessed, and they have the danger from their home life that they escaped from. So I had to work that into each of the stories. Then, to add to the complexity... Various of the secondary characters appear in all the books. So, and some of these secondary characters have backstories that interlap, that go back like 30, 40 years. For example, there's a senator who is in all the books, and he went to school with the father of the second heroine. And the stepfather of the first heroine is a high-ranking police officer, and so he knows all the politicians, and he knows the father of the heroine of book two, and so they all intersected. So I had to make huge charts then 
and try to keep all these characters straight, all the characters that I needed for the story, and figure out not, not only how do they know each other now, but did they know each other back then? So this was just made me crazy, because their ages and timelines all had to match up. Then, so I had to make plausible plots as well, because once I had all the characters and the premise, I still had to come up with a plot, right? What's going to happen in the story? Um, characters had to grow and change, because in all fiction, that's what you're reading for, right? You want to see the character grappling with problems um, and growing and learning something. At the end of the story, the character has to be different than she was at the beginning of the story for it to be satisfying. Um, So I had that to worry about. Then I had a hero for each of these heroines, because they're love stories. The hero also had to have his own growth arc, And when you write a romantic suspense, both the suspense and the romance have to be very tightly woven. You can't have one without the other. So anything that happens romance-wise has to impact on the mystery and vice versa. So if something happens in the suspense plot, that should have some sort of repercussion on the romance. So all of these had to be in place. So every scene I wrote had to do triple duty for character development, plot development, romance, suspense, and getting all these characters straight. Um, I will say that I just felt absolutely crazed by the time I finished this trilogy, but it was extremely satisfying. It was like a, it was like a huge intellectual puzzle putting all these pieces together, and I was really happy at the end when I was able to get it all to pretty much work. The other reason that um, novels are not easy to write, and mine in particular, um, and this is where the library comes in, is um, you've all heard the old adage that you should write what you know. Well, unfortunately, and that is great advice, except that I really don't know very much. I, um, I have a few areas of expertise. I used to play the bagpipes, so I know about bagpipes. I lived in Spain for some years. I speak Spanish, and I taught school. I taught high school and middle school and college, English and Spanish. However, that doesn't give me a lot to work with when I'm writing romantic suspense. There are huge areas that I know nothing about, weapons and the police and you name it. I I really don't know about it, which is where I have to start doing research. Um, And luckily for me, I do love to do research. Um, The internet makes things quite easy. YouTube is amazing. Everything is out on YouTube. If you want to see a bomb explode, if you want to see someone... um, shoot a gun at a textbook and see what damage it does. Someone out there has put it out on YouTube. It's just amazing. Um, However, nothing beats firsthand experience. I mean, to get all of the little details that you need into a novel to actually make it seem real, you really need to go to the places as much as possible and experience the events. Um, and so the, one of the problems I ran into when I was thinking about my heroine for the first book, who was a photographer, is, all right, so she was this 13-year-old runaway um, who is now a famous photojournalist. Well, how did she get there? I mean, how did she learn photographer, photography during all this time? She didn't even go to high school. She was on the run from age 13 on. So I came up with a backstory for her that her father, her real father, had been an amateur photographer, and they had done things together. And then when he died, that was her connection to him, 
to keeping the memory of her father alive. And when she ran away, she, her beloved possession that she took with her was her 35-millimeter camera, because, of course, back then that would have been film-based photography. But I still had the problem in that buying film takes money, um, she wouldn't have, as a runaway, she would not have a lot of money to waste. So how did she do this? How did she learn her craft? Well, I have a friend who lives in Baltimore, and she mentioned the Pratt Library. And she said, you know, they have these beautiful display windows out in front. You know, maybe she saw, maybe they were doing a display on photography or, or a photographer, um, and she saw this, and I thought, what a great idea. So I decided that would be wonderful, that A. Aubrey... Bodine was being featured and that the Pratt Library had put up these displays and she went in um, to, to see what it was about and became hooked and started coming to the library routinely and looking at everything she could, all the photography books and really studying to learn her craft. Um, and then when they, the girls witness the murder, what happens is that the photographer or the budding photographer is out practicing. She's in an abandoned building taking photographs and stumbles across this crime scene. So as she's taking the photos, she actually catches part of the murder on film. And the girls run away. The murderer, unfortunately, sees them and gives, um, goes in pursuit. And as they are running away, and this is all in the backstory. Um, there is another runaway, a friend of theirs, a boy who jumps in and helps them and in the process is killed. So when this happens, the photographer, who again is only about 13 at the time, realizes she has evidence on film, but she doesn't trust the police. Her stepfather, her abusive stepfather, is a cop. And so the last people she's going to go to is the police. So what she does... Um, is she has the film developed, and I, I worked out how, how she did that. And she mailed a copy anonymously of the prints to the police department because she did want the murderer caught um, because their friend was killed. But she was savvy enough to think that the police might not, um, either might not get it or I might have need for it later. So what she needed to do was hide the negatives. So I thought, well, where would she go? She's homeless, right? And if she hid them outdoors, they would get destroyed. I mean, you can't have negatives out in the wind and the rain for 15 years and have them really survive. So I decided she hid them in the library. Since she came here for research, this would be the, like, the likely place. And that's when I met Wesley Wilson. <laughs> I emailed and said, would you mind, you know, if I came in, could you answer some questions? And he very kindly agreed. Um, we spent a wonderful day going through the library trying to find a hiding place for the, the negatives. Um, it was not as easy as what you might think because 15 years ago, or actually more like 17 years, because by the time the book was going to get published, it would have been about 17 years, the library was different. So I had to find an area that had not been remodeled and that was in existence at the time. Um, I had to decide how hard did I want to make it for her to find these negatives. Would it be something she could just go in and, oh, there they are, or did I really want to make her have to work to find them? For example, if she, I didn't think she would put them in a book because if she put them in a book and the book got checked out, someone would find the negatives, right? Um, she could, or the book could get discarded, right, because library materials are periodically discarded. Um, 
I could put it in a reference book, which would not get checked out. But again, somebody might happen to look at it and find the negatives. Um, and also books have moved, right? Books that 15 years ago were in one section are no longer in those sections. Um, we went through the stacks, right? And, and uh, Wesley told me about, you know, different areas they could be in. But if it was in the stacks then she would have to get a librarian. She'd have to find it in the catalog, make sure the book was still there, get the librarian to help her. So I, again, I started thinking about, well, how much space do I really want this to take in the plot? Right? What, what do I want to do? Then we started looking actually more at, like, at the infrastructure, at the walls and you know, radiators and things like that. And we looked in the Poe room also, and I thought, oh, this would be beautiful, you know, and she could put it behind a painting or something. But the Poe room is normally kept locked, so that, would, that kept that out. So finally we decided on the fine arts room just across the hall. In the back there is a ca- built-in cabinet where music, I guess, was always kept, sheet music. Um, and at the time, I don't know if it still is, but at the time I was writing the book, it was empty. However, the drawers are still there. And by taking out some drawers, we, I was thinking at first, well, maybe she would have taped, you know, if she had them in an envelope, maybe she would have taped it to the bottom of a drawer. But Wesley put his arm in, and he realized that if you, if you take out the drawer and you, you touch the back wall, the panel kind of gives. And if there's a space where the panel abuts another one, where two pieces are joined, she could actually slip an envelope in there, all right? So that solved the problem, and that's where I ended up having her hide the negatives, and 15 years later, they were still there, so that solved the problem. Um, So that was just one example of research I had to do, and that's how the Pratt Library ended up being in my book. Um, The police was a whole other area. I mean, I don't even watch CSI. I don't know anything about the police, (laughs) So, but again, I was lucky to have a friend who had a friend who was a Baltimore um, police officer, and he was able to answer quite a few of my questions, and then he invited me on a police ride-along, which was terribly exciting, Um, one of the more exciting things I've ever done. Um, I got up at the crack of dawn, um, met him in Baltimore, um, was given a bulletproof vest, made to sign a disclaimer that if I got shot, I would not sue the police department, and off we went. And I thought that um, a ride-along was just that, that I would sit in this safe little police car and watch what unfolded. Well, no, I actually had to get out of the car with him um, as he went around all day, which I found uh, both thrilling and scary. Uh, We delivered several ex partes, which I didn't know, but those are restraining orders. Uh, We chased a car, which we didn't catch, but it was still you know, kind of an adrenaline rush. Um, He asked me what I wanted to see, and I mentioned that there were um, some drug addicts in my book. And so he took me to a flop house, which, again, was quite scary. He had his weapon drawn and told me all the dangers of confronting um, junkies because they're so unpredictable. Um, We helped arrest two men for breaking and entering. I say we... (laughs) I surely did not do anything except hover in the corner terrified, Um, but he helped arrest two men. And then to cap off the day, um, we processed a stolen auto report. It was a woman who had been abused. She had an abusive um, ex-boyfriend who had stolen her car, um, and that was that day. So um, definitely all of those events really helped me 
um, make my book work. And the police officer, Robert Carazone, was fabulous um, because he would ask me, all right, like, what do you need to know? And so I, I said, well, here's what I have my hero do because my hero is also a police officer in the book. So the police um, figure prominently. And he would look at me and he'd say, uh-uh, no, he'd never do that. And I would come back, well, he has to do that. I'm on deadline. I don't have time to change this story. So there would be a big sigh, and then he'd think about it, and he'd say, all right, look, this, this is what he should do, but if you really want him to do something else, here's how he could justify it. And then he would help me find a way to work around the correct procedure so that my procedure could work with a minimum of revisions. So that was a lifesaver. And he read it at the end. Um, so I had confidence that I had not written anything that was too drastically wrong in the book. Um, so I owe, definitely owe him, um, as well as everyone else, a huge debt for all the, the research help. Um, so the, the, that was a long answer. The short answer is no, they are not easy to write. <laughs> I don't think any book is, unless you happen to really be an expert in a field and you write about that field. Um, you know, in hindsight, if I could do it over again, I should have had a different kind of life where I'd have useful information that I could use, but that didn't happen. Um, and then my last um, belief, mistaken belief, is that romance novels follow a formula. Um, and that is both true and false. All storytelling has a structure to it. Um, a lot of people use, like, the Joseph Campbell's um, The Hero's Journey. There are different stages. For example, there's usually, you know, the, like, the status quo, and then there's an inciting incident. In other words, there's a problem, right? Something happens, and the, the character may or may not resist getting involved and then is forced to get involved. And then you have stages during the story. And this is not just romance novel. It's any kind of story, whether it be in a book or film. Um, the Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, all of them follow a very defined structure, a storytelling structure that is as ancient as humans themselves, something that resonates to us. Um, now, it is, it is also true that in um, a romance novel, because it is about a relationship and a love story, they're going to meet, they're going to have problems, and then they're going to have a happy ending. So in that sense, I guess you could say, yes, that is a formula. Um, but a lot of things in life have structures and formulas. For example, think of a sports game. I mean, I could say a basketball game, two teams come together on a court, they have a certain number of minutes, they have a standard size ball, and they spend it running back and forth, making baskets or not, and at the end, someone usually wins, all right? So that's a formula, too. And the reason people love sports, of course, is because you become involved with the team, right? You get to know the characters, the, the characters, the players, right? Um, you follow the team, you root for them, you have an emotional investment in it, um, you go to the games if you can or follow them on television, um, and it's satisfying to you when your team wins. Um, it's more satisfying to you if it's a tough game and your team still wins. So, for example, if you go to a game and you, the opponent is not very good, um, you know, it's a nice game. You watch and your team wins and you go home happy. But if it's a really close match, if it's a really tight competition, right, and you're winning, you're losing, you're winning, you're losing, right, and, you, you know, your heart's racing when, and you're cheering wildly and 
Um, things happen, and then if the, you, the clock is ticking down and your team is behind and you're you know, at the verge of despair. Oh, my gosh, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. You know, we're down by two points, and there's only five seconds left on the clock, and then four seconds, then three seconds. And then at the last minute, one of the players gets the ball, you know, has a, what is it, a Hail Mary shot, or is that football? <laughs> you know, throws the ball, and it goes in the basket, and you win. And you have that whole feeling of catharsis, right? That is so satisfying, because you have just followed the emotions, you know, the ups and downs, and all of, you know, injuries, or, you know, someone falls out, and all the things that happen, right? And it's the same thing with the romance novel. Yes, we know that they're going to get together at the end, right? Um, But what we read for is that human connection. We want to see these two flawed people forge a relationship. We want to see their conflicts. We want to see what keeps them apart. We want to see what keeps them together. Um, And we want to follow their relationship, just as in real life, you know, the ups and the downs. Um, There's always the, the black moment or the dark period towards the end when all hope is lost, and then the characters make their final growth. They, make, they realize what they've been doing wrong. Um, and then they're able to actually seize the happy ending that they deserve. And that's what keeps people reading romances. Um, and that's what it's about. So those are my um, seven beliefs about romance novels. Um, I don't know if you have any questions about my books, about romance in general, um, writing. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer. Do you write during certain times of the day? Do you pick a morning or an afternoon, or is it when you're simply moved? Oh, well. Well, if I'm on a deadline, definitely not. (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I love the idea that I could just sit around and write when the mood strikes me. I don't tend to just come up with ideas that way, though. I tend to come up with ideas by writing. As I write, the ideas seem to come. Um, I'm a morning person, so I generally prefer to work in the morning. Um, Certainly at night, I'm just way too tired. I don't want to have to think. Um, That's when I love to read um, and read something different than what I'm writing um, because that helps get my creative ideas going. Um, all writers are different. Everybody has a completely different process. Um, I have heard, um, for example, recently Sylvia Day, who is um, um, a very well-known um, romance novelist um, and actually, I think, president of RWA right now, she says she just thinks about her stories for months and then she sits down and writes them in a matter of weeks. She's able to just get it all in her head and realize what's going to happen, and then it just comes out in a mad rush, you know, like 24 hours a day type of frenzied writing. Um, I'm more of a plotter. I like, to, I like to think about my characters, and I have to actually, like, write things out or talk them out um, and get a much firmer idea of my story in advance, um, particularly because I'm writing suspense and because the plots are so um, tightly woven, I, I really can't just wing it and then go back and try to fix it all. I think, and, and I think most mystery suspense writers do tend to be more plotters um, just because of that. Um, but 
No, it's kind of a grind. I just, <laughs> it's sitting in front of the computer and forcing myself to do it. Um, first draft for me is always just anguishing. I mean, I hate to write the first draft. It's, it's just awful. Um, the fun for me is playing with the words afterwards. And I usually, if I can at least get some kind of draft down, then I can um, fix it no matter how bad it is, then I can relax and try to fix it and make it sound the way I want it to. But the first draft to me is always a lot of pressure and I have a lot of, that's when I have all the little self-doubts and criticisms and thinking, oh, this is awful, this is awful. (laughs) But then I fix it later, so. But that's kind of my process. Um, And again, um, I'm a slow thinker in that I, I have to think about stories for a long time. And I think for me, that gives my character's more emotional resonance. Um, Because if I try to write too quickly, I mean, I can get kind of the superficial story down, but I I really want to think about it deeper and just just kind of really hit the emotion of what's happening in every scene. And that seems to take time with me. Um, Teresa. Um, First question. Do you have a pen name? I don't. I just write under Gail Barrett. I... Originally, I was going to write under my maiden name, Gail Archer, and for some reason, at the time that I sold my first book, um, my publisher didn't want that name. I don't know whether there was another Archer at the time or whatever, so I just I couldn't think of anything else that was significant, so I thought, well, it's just me then. <laughs> question. I know sometimes when we have authors here, and they talk about how they got started, and they submitted their, and they said, oh, the publisher said that. Well, well, I'll I'll take that in two parts. Um, I I've not had like you know I've not like rocketed to success. I everything for me has taken a long time. Um, and when I finally got serious about writing, it actually took me twelve years to sell a book. Um, I wrote for about six years. Um, got all sorts of rejections. Um, And I also won some contests. So I was getting good feedback, but I was not selling. And then I got really depressed, and for about three years I didn't write at all. And then I decided that I was more miserable not writing than I was getting rejections. And I thought, I just have, I'm a writer. I have to write. Even if I never sell a book, it's what I have to do. So I went back to writing, and about three years after that is when I finally sold a book. And the first book I sold was the sixth full book I'd written, um, and I had various partials that I had abandoned along the way. Um, and the reason is, I think the reason that I did well in contests at the start is I learned how to write the beginning of a book. But a lot can go wrong between the start and the end of a story. <laughs> and I didn't know how to write a romance. I didn't know how to make you know, the characters, how to make their relationship develop, and I didn't know how to really put a mystery together well. So there was a long learning curve. Um, After that, and I I will say this is one of the things that people rarely talk about, but I have gotten many rejections after I sold. Um, I've now, well, published, December will be my 13th book, but I have probably at least a half a dozen other stories that got rejected in that time. So just because you sell a book doesn't mean necessarily that everything you write is going to be, um, that, that a publisher is going to want it. Um, there are a lot of factors. Sometimes stories just don't work. Um, sometimes it's the market because it is a business and they're looking at what they can sell. 
Um, they may have recently bought you know, 10 stories that are similar, and you have no idea what other people are submitting. Um, and you just happen to submit something that they've just bought, and they think, no, we don't want two stories that are the same. So there are a lot of books, um, other books that are you know, beautifully written, but just don't fit in a particular niche. And I think that's where self-publishing has changed a lot of things, because a lot of those kinds of books now can find a market where in the past they couldn't. Um, as far as the actual revision process goes, when you turn in a book, when you're writing for a publisher, um, and I sell on proposal now, which means I write three chapters and a synopsis, and I turn it in, and they, we either go to contract on it or they pass. Um, if we go to contract, then we set a deadline, um, which is where the nerves come in. <laughs> oh, now I have to write it. It was such a good idea, but now I've got to work. And... Um, then I, I, when I turn it in, um, then they read through it and they either accept it or not. Now, I've been really lucky. I've always had mine accepted. I've never needed major revisions. Um, I have always had or almost always had some revisions, um, but usually they can be handled at the editing stages. Um, and you usually go through several editors. You have your own editor who reads for the story and makes sure the ideas are there. You have copy editors um, and line editors, and they go through it and they make sure there aren't inconsistencies, you know, that the heroine's hair isn't blonde on one page and red the next page. And those things happen, you know, where suddenly, you know, I had one story where I forgot that she had her hand bandaged. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, what happened to the, <laughs> the bandage on her hand? Um, so they read for those kinds of things, word repetitions that creep in, um, or they make suggestions, clarify, didn't understand this part. Um, so as a writer, if you're, if you're writing professionally, you have to expect that it's a collaborative effort and that the editors that work with you are trying to make the book as good as it can be, that they are your friends, your allies. They're not your enemies trying to tear it down. They're really trying to make it better. Um, sometimes there are um, differences of opinions, um, but I've not had many, um, and I've um, no bad experiences with that. So, yeah. Are you, are you at all accessible to people who read your books? Accessible meaning what? Well, do people contact you uh, through either the, the, the publisher or however someone has found you? I don't know what information is. Yep, I'm on the, I've got a website, just gailbarrett.com, um, where people can contact me. I'm on Facebook. Um, I do a lot of, um, for example, recently out in Hagerstown where I live, we had the Nora Roberts Writing Institute. Um, their first, this year was the inaugural session of that, and I met a lot of writers there, and we've stayed in contact through email. Um, I love to talk to other writers, and I think, I think writers in general, but particularly romance writers, tend to be very helpful and very generous people. I've met some amazing people who are always willing to talk about writing and, and help other budding writers and give, um, you know, information and that type of thing. So, um, and certainly with the internet, it's helped. It makes it really easy to contact people now, um, as opposed to in the old days, you know, where you had to write to the publisher. Uh, but usually you can also, if you wanted to contact a writer and didn't know the website, um, you could go through the publisher. But most writers now, I mean, almost everyone has a website, whether they're published or not. Everybody's out there. So, yeah. Yes, um, 
being here earlier before you started, you mentioned something about the necklace being part of one of the plot <laughs> points. Could, could you say that so other folks and the people who will be listening on the podcast would be able to not miss out on that? Well, in my story, um, we were talking about revisions and editing, and I was, I was mentioning that one of the key pieces in... Um, one of the key clues in this story is a necklace um, that has a symbol on it. Um, and um, there was some question during the editing phase whether or not the necklace added to the story. Um, and so that, that was one time when my editor, editor and I talked about it and we ended up leaving it in the story. And I think we both agreed that it was a good thing in the end because it, taking it out would have been involved major revisions. It, I had put it in as a, as a really key piece, um, a clue in the mystery. Um, I, I'm not sure if that's what you meant, but yeah. But yeah, but, um, and, and I've been so lucky. I mean, I have a wonderful editor that we've worked together through all my books, um, and so I really depend on her input she's able I've almost I I would say like 99% of the time I've agreed with every comment she and invariably she'll bring up something and I will have thought of it earlier and then just either not had time to address it or you know shrugged it off and then she'll pick up on something that I I knew in my heart I really had to change or enlarge on so and it's great to have a partner like that so so what's your take on uh, kind of dressing up language in terms of, um, you, so you write your first draft and then you go back and, and do you try to make it sound literary, for instance, or do you try to put certain words into, for lack of better word, big words and you try to kind of... No, actually just the opposite. <laughs> I, um, and I don't know why. Years ago, I, you know, obviously, you know, usually when you're in school, you know, you try to write really fancy things. Um, but... And maybe it's just a product of our times, but I I think that I want I want my books to be easy to read. I, I would rather have them be more artistic. I want you know for example, I Hemingway really influenced me. Some of his phrasing was just beautiful. Um, the types of analogies or metaphors that the way he would describe things, and yet he used very simple words. So my goal is I don't want to stop the reader. I don't want the reader to have to stop and think, what did that word mean? You know, because it comes across to me as pompous, like you're trying to show that you are educated and that your reader should know this. So my goal is to use the best words that I can to describe what I'm what I'm trying to portray. Um, but I, I pretty intentionally try to keep it um, simple. I, I don't want it to be about the words so much. I want it to be about the emotion. So whatever works to evoke the emotion is what I go for. Yeah. What is your next book coming out, and are you coming back here to do your research? <laughs> <laughs> well, you could ask me. <laughs> now, the last book of this trilogy comes out in December. So just a couple months. The first one, Fatal Exposure, um, came out in June. The second book was in August. Um, so that's available now, like on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Um, and then the third book, The Conclusion, comes out in December. Um, and I'm very excited about that book. It's uh, um, very timely because, um, as I said, she's Middle Eastern, so it kind of brings in some things that you might be seeing in the news. 
Um, and I'm kind of a news junkie. I, that's part of the whole research that I love to do. I lo- and I, I read some really grim things when I'm doing research. I mean, really scary stuff that's going on in the world, which is another reason why I like romance. I like to have a happy ending because the real world is scary and depressing. So, um, But I like to work those things into my plots as much as possible and keep them timely. But again, it's always about, I mean, these are romances primarily. So that is what has to drive the story. Anything else is really there just to fuel this um, relationship. And it's a matter of emphasis, you know, as opposed to, there are many books that have romantic elements or have romances as a subplot. Whereas in a romance, that is the main story and the other items or subplots are are there to um, make the romance work better. So it's just a matter of how you shift the emphasis in your story. So, as publishing changes, and there's this perception that we're moving away from print to electronic books or to digital, to digital uh, Are you at all pressured by your editors to produce? stories that will appear electronically only? Well, that is a phenomenon. It's not happened to me, but there are some publishing houses that have started like with electronic only as the first, and then if they do well, they will go into print because of the cost of print. So that is, that is a trend which disturbs me because I love print books. I mean, I love libraries. I like looking at the books. Um, you know, um, definitely... I think e-readers are here to stay. Digital is going to be around. All my books are available digitally. I mean, they automatically come out digitally with the print versions. Um, but I really hope, and I, I don't think print will ever go away, um, but I, and I hope not, because I do love the actual books. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, depending on the publisher and the writer, but my recent books have been put on audio also, which is really bizarre to hear someone reading your story (laughs) it's just it is so strange um but yeah they're out there on audio too so i think all of these formats are good um you know if you're traveling an e-reader is fabulous i mean you don't have to lug around a bunch of books um i think it opens up a lot of different kinds of books to people um and we don't know. I mean, right now I've heard people say it's like the Wild West in publishing. I mean, everything is changing. What I say today will be different tomorrow. Um, and the, the whole self-publishing or what they call indie publishing is a huge phenomenon. Um, hard to say where that's going to end up. A lot of people have been able to publish books um, and, and make fabulous careers by self-publishing. Um, a lot of people don't. So it's hard to know really what's going to happen. Um, but there's just a lot going on. This is a time of great turmoil in publishing. And even the editors and agents will tell you the same thing. We don't really know what's happening. Any other questions? No? Well, if not, yeah. Pardon? No, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it on this rainy Thursday night. Um, again, thank you. And it was wonderful to be here. Yeah. <laughs>